Can I just point out another answer to prayer as we go into the word? Mano, do you want to understand? We prayed that God would give us another drummer, and he gave us Mano. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well done for joining and being obedient to the Lord. Any other prayer requests? Let's do them now. <laughs> God has been good to us. Let's open up to Song of Songs, uh, chapter 6. You might be wondering why there isn't the usual wood in front of me. It's just I want to use potentially this as a, as a uh, prop this morning. So I want you to be able to see what a table, okay? So let's go to um, Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 1, or Song of Solomon, sorry. I, you can call them either. All right. And it's starting off with these others that are around the bride and the bridegroom, this young girl. And they make a comment about her life. It is profound. In Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 1, let's read together. Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful? Wow, O most beautiful among women. Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him? With you. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies, and now he speaks. This is the first time we've heard his voice since her traumatic experience of him uh, uh, withdrawing from her. You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one of them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Ah, my dove, my perfect one is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? And she responds, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley. She goes on a walk to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. And then you get these dodgy others. Return, return, oh, dance, dance, O oh Shulamites. Return, return, that we may look upon you. It's a dodgy look. And the Shepherd king steps in and her husband says, why should you look upon the Shulamites as upon a dance before two armies? He comes in with protection. So I want to unpack his words today, but before I do, I want to get us into a big picture of what are we doing in this book? And it's my first point, is the power of an integrated life. I want to ask the question to you as a follower of Jesus this morning, how did she reach such a level of character in terms of her beauty and her outward display of grace that these people can look at her life and say, oh, most beautiful among women. She is admired for her characteristics. And what is it about her life that her love for Jesus is so influential that those around her say, we want what you've got. 
We want to seek this person that has so won your heart. And friends, today, I want to say to you, it is possible to feel very intimidated by her life. Because when I read her life, I go, she's almost picture perfect. I mean, she's made one mistake the whole book. Is it possible to have this kind of connection with the shepherd king and to reach such a level of devotion, such a level of influence in terms of her love him that other people are around her saying, wow, we want what you've got with this shepherd king. We want to seek him with you. Yes, it is. But the point is, you will not be able to reach this kind of level of beauty in your walk with Jesus and influence in the people around you directly. What Song of Songs is teaching you is the pathway to godliness. It's teaching you that if you try and attack the godly life head on, so I'll give you an example. Let's say you're reading her and you say, Jesus, I want this sort of, this sort of influence with, with my friends around me. I want this sort of influence where people can admire my faith and say, wow, what have you got in Jesus that I don't? Show me. Well, friends, if you say, well, I'm going to be like her directly, you make these inner vows and say, when I'm with people, I'm going to behave like this, I'm going to say these things, I'm going to think these things, I'm going to so impress them that they are going to want Jesus, you're not going to be able to cope. I've tried it, it doesn't work. When you put under your, yourself under great pressure to conform to her likeness, it fails. Because the first thing is you'll find is when you live like that, you can't sustain it. You do not have the emotional energy or the ability to be something that you aren't really on the inside yet. And the world seems to smell your sweat. You know, I tried very hard to emulate her at school with my school friends, and I would make these inner vows in the morning, you must, you have to, you will. And I was so obsessed about my engaging with these people around me, but what they picked up wasn't a loveliness, they picked up a sort of self-righteousness. They could smell that I was sweating in my desire to represent Jesus. And I don't know if you can relate, but if you are sincere this morning on being like this girl and representing Christ well, you have to learn the way she reaches the heights of her godliness. You see, what I want to point out to you this morning is Song of Songs is telling you that what we are witnessing coming out of her life is a side effect of what is happening within her. Please hear me this morning. Legalism, laws upon your life, these harsh vows that you make to put yourself under pressure to be something you're not quite yet on the inside is not going to get you to the quality of her faith. It's not going to get you to the heights of love for Jesus. Friends, what is going to get you there is the state of your inner life towards Christ and your desire for him. I want to remind you that her secret throughout this book is that she is seeking daily close fellowship with her shepherd king. In every area of her life, she is wanting to enjoy him and be aware of him. And she is exemplifying what John 15 verse 5 says. Remember what Jesus said? It's the teaching of Song of Songs. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he's talking about fellowship. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The way a branch bears fruit is by being in frequent contact with the vine. Not so? No other way. There is no other way you are going to live a glorious life for Jesus 
by not being with him. And that is why The Secret to Godliness is a book about desire. It is probing our hearts towards this glorious person, Jesus. It is asking the fundamental question of what is driving your life. And the way she reaches these heights is not through rational laws and vows. It is through relationship, constant contact with this king. And friends, I want to nudge you in this area this morning. The great secret to living a life that not only pleases Jesus but catches the attention of the world is when you are not focusing directly on him, what you are focusing on is the level of desire in your heart and how you are yielding to it towards Jesus. And I have to ask you again this morning, what is your level, your barometer in your heart towards Christ? You see, as a church, we are never going to reach the maturity and stature of Jesus unless we are giving ourselves to the right thing. And I want to point out, she expends an enormous amount of energy. I'm not talking about a passive sort of kumbaya faith. What I'm talking about is she focuses on the right thing, which is her life in proximity to the one she loves. And it is the single-mindedness where she's watching all the time in your bed at night. You ask, what is my level of desire for you, Jesus? When you get up in the morning, where is my heart with you, Lord? Every single moment, she is measuring her life, not by her performance, but by her proximity. There's a difference. And until we have this uniform passion to be close to Christ in every area, an awareness of this King of Kings, we will not reach the level of godliness God is calling us to And we will lack, this is what the problem is, we will lack the integrity of being a follower of Christ in the eyes of the world. What gives her this authority with these people is, she is about one thing, there is an integration, there is a unity in her life. Her posture is one posture as she's doing everything, which is this desire, this nearness, this longing to be close to her shepherd king. And if you live like this, this is the promise, this is the promise. Indirectly, you will reach the kind of life you long to for Jesus. You, you, you long to live for Jesus. When you are seeking to enjoy him, you realize you can't enjoy him and sin at the same time. It's impossible. It's not a vow that's making you not sin. It's realizing you can't have him if you dabble in what destroys closeness with him. You with me? You are sensitive to competition in your heart. That's the, part, that's the point. Is You are aware. Are there competing desires here for Jesus, and you become increasingly aware of what he likes and doesn't. When you want to be close to someone, you realize they have ways and habits. There are things they like and don't like. If you want to be close to me, don't talk about soccer. I won't understand anything, right? You can talk to me about other things. There are things that are on my mind. There are things that are on your mind, and you're finding what they're interested in. You become aware of how much his worth is to you. And this is the thing you become aware of how important it is to him that you love people. And you become aware of what it's like to live without Jesus because you are enjoying how much you have by living with him. That's the motivation for evangelism, is you realize the destiny and the experience of a human life without the presence of Jesus. It's awful. It's terrible. And I want to make my second point this morning, is the reason why it's so important that we have this integration, this this, this, this one, 
one single-heartedness, this undivided heart, the single-mindedness, is the essence of discipleship is helping people find Jesus. I want to nudge you this morning, Sterling. When you are with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you must be looking for this thing in their life. It's not how you're doing, how's work. What you are looking for is what she is helping them in. They're asking, we want to seek him with you. Show us how to find him. And her life, it's discipleship. She is discipling them in how to find Jesus. And her concern is she's saying, if you want to come and join me, you're going to have to come and enjoy the, the one thing I'm about, which is about this Jesus. And in Matthew 28, we're all called to make disciples. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about us being able to help others follow Jesus well. And that is not an easy thing, my friend. It is not an academic experience. You realize that this Jesus has habits. He's got preferences. He's got ways of working that we need to become familiar with if we're going to learn how to follow and stay close to him. And let me tell you, the reason why it is so important that you guard your desire and your following of Jesus is because you are learning on the job and your brothers and sisters in Christ need that learning too. So when we get together as a small group, small group leaders, this is the purpose of what we are doing on a Wednesday night whenever your small group meets. I am not so concerned about whether or not we have accurately translated truth full stop. If they have rightly understood the sermon, that is just the bare beginning. Let me tell you what I'm after is I am interested by them leaving after that Wednesday night meeting. Are their hearts warmer towards Jesus? Is there a deeper desire for the Son of God? Are they talking to Him? When last can they express that He's spoken to them? When last can they have an atmosphere in their heart? When last have you sensed hunger in them, thirst, desire? When can you look into their eyes? When last when you saw in their eyes the life of the Spirit, the twinkling of seeing that they're alive to this King of Kings? Surely, if that is not there, the person's not going anywhere. And that's when I want to look. Praise God, the masks are gone. Why do you think I have passion when I preach? Is it because I'm just interested in your mind? Of course not. I want to move you towards Jesus, and I'm trusting the Spirit to help me. Because, friends, if your heart is not warm to this Christ, what good is it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, knowledge puffs up. Friends, there is a risk for us as a church that we are so right in our understanding, but so dead towards Jesus, so dead towards God. It quenches the Spirit. It quenches the move of the Spirit. We want a powerful atmosphere of the pleasure of Jesus being among this place. But what puts him off is a form of unbelief where we are so neat and tidy in our understanding, but we deny him in our experience. And friends, I want to guide us this morning. What are we about our primary value is to love up. What does that mean? Is when we are looking to Jesus, we are seeing not only in our own lives, in our brothers and sisters, a burning desire that this man, this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords is worth living for and we're going to meet him one day and we want to live so well that when we make the transition, it will feel like home already. That in this life, it's not that we've lived in some sort of atmosphere of being an alien towards Christ, that we're shocked when we get to be in the presence of God. No, no. We want to so live by faith, by the help of the Spirit, we want to be so close to this Jesus on earth that when we get to heaven, we go, wow. It's just a continuum of what we've enjoyed on earth. Now, <coughs> excuse me, I'm recovering from flu. The way that this is going to work in your life is Jesus is going to train you 
And the way he does it is through trials. And my third point is this, is that trials, friends, this experience of pain in her life is actually the grace of God at work to get her closer to him. And I'm stealing Artie Kendall's words here. He says trials are the best test of grace and the best means of grace. Some of you are going through deep trials. God has touched your health. He's touched your business. He's touched your kids. He's touched your job. There are areas of need, that's what a trial is, that are out of your control from being able to fix. That's the difference between sin and the difference between suffering. Is, is suffering without sin, is, is, is God is touching something in your life. He's frustrating your progress in a certain area. And why does he allow that to do that? Because it's for two reasons. When God does it, it's not that he's being cruel. He's wanting to test how far grace has gone in your life. Grace brings revelation. Today will be revelation, God willing, for you. You will see something you never quite saw in this text before. But that's just the start. Is he creates these environments where you have to apply what he has taught you through the Spirit. And what that means is, is when there is an area of need, it is an opportunity to apply what you have been shown by grace. And so we see in, in, in Solomon uh, chapter 5, verse 10, Mark preached this last week, She's not listening to his voice. She's telling these people what she already knows and how she's living from it. And I, I want to come to that point today. But the point is this is she is applying what she knows in Jesus, in her shepherd king. And the point is that's why James can say you can count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. It's because it is the testing of the faith that is already there. It is a testing of what you know and can apply in that moment. And do you know that the test is always appropriate to the level of knowledge that you have that you're able to stand? You hear me on that? You might not think so, but it's, it's true. God is so gracious in the level of trial to match the amount of grace in your life. What he is looking for is, what is the test going to be? Are you going to pass the application? Are you going to apply what you know to be true about Jesus? And what you'll find is, it's not only the best test of grace, child, it is the best means of grace. She learns to stand in what she knows about the shepherd king when he withdraws from her. But now we come this morning to, he tells her more. It's wonderful. Do you want more of Jesus? Can I tell you, A.W. Toes is right. You can have as much of him as you want. But you're going to have to go through the training to get him. And the way it works is this. It says in Scripture, very clear, to him who has, more will be given so that he has an abundance. In other words, to him who has the revelation and applies it, more will be given to that man or woman. Oh, but the one who has not. In other words, he doesn't apply it. Even what he has will be taken away. Matthew 13 verse 12 is you are on a precipice for growth if you're willing to embrace the trial as learning. And what I want to talk about today is my fourth point, is the importance. What she learns is life-changing. And I'm going to do my best to show you how important it is to us this morning of what she is learning from her shepherd king. The fourth point is the importance of knowing our identity in Christ. I'm going to use that word interchangeably with position. The importance of knowing your position 
in Christ. Now, please don't switch off. You have heard this term before, I'm sure. But I want you to look at it with fresh eyes today from what it means for your daily life with Jesus if you will yield to the way it is designed to work in you. When the shepherd king starts to speak, she is learning, listen to me this morning, she is learning more about how he sees her. That is the basis of Christian identity. Not what you think. It's not what she thinks. It's what he says. And do you notice she doesn't argue with him? Let me tell you, I asked my wife if I could use her as an example this morning. She said, yes. My wife has a doctorate in how to deflect a compliment. I am looking at people in this room that struggle to believe others when they say things that they see in them. Good things. Noreen is a master, a mistress, a professor. I'm, I'm finally getting there. I tease her a lot. But friends, we struggle at a human level. Don't you think we'll struggle at a spiritual level that when Jesus says things of how he sees us, we go, oh. And the thing that I admire about this woman is she doesn't argue back. She believes it. It's powerful. You know, what matters to her is not what the concubines think. Such a weird term. I'm so grateful we don't have concubines here this morning. It's not what the queens think. There's 60 of them. It's not what the young virgins think. No, no, friends. What matters to her is what does he think. And based on what he thinks, that's how she builds her life. Do you? Do you know, I, I do not have fashion sense. You'll notice I probably have two outfits that I just rotate. If I could wear uniform as a pastor, I would love it. If I could have the old dog collar and the thing, you know, you never have to worry about what I wear. So I'm a bit insecure about how I look. And what do I do in the morning? I say to Marina, Marina, do you like this? She goes, yeah, it looks great. So I'm like, okay, if she thinks I'm okay, I'm very sorry about the rest of you. If my wife thinks I'm hot, if my wife thinks I look good, it doesn't matter. She is the primary person in my life. And friends, can I say to you, knowing your position, your identity, in other words, knowing what Jesus thinks of you determines how you're going to live for him. It is so powerful. This is, this is, this is my best example. Come on, Laurie, you've got a very fatherly figure. No, no, wait. Dad, sorry, sorry. My earthly father. Come, come, come. Quick, quick. Praise the Lord. You have to be nimble. All right. This is my dad. He's enjoying a meal. Here's my seat. I'm his son. And he's waiting for me to come and enjoy a meal with him. He's, he's, he wants to know how I'm doing. He's uh, had this fully prepared but I don't believe him that I'm his son. It's too good to be true. I just think I'm a servant. So what do I do? I didn't bring a tray. I'll hide behind you. And when he, when, when he wants something, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll be working around. He'll say, come on. He'll say, hey, my son, come eat. No, no, I can't be that. I can't be your son. It's too good to be true. I'm just a servant. I'm just, I'm just a slave. I'm only good enough just to come and do your bidding and here's your tray and, and here's your baked beans and, and your toast and whatever else you like. You know. But he's saying, here's your seats at the table. I've prepared this all for you. You're my son. I want to be with you. I delight being close to you. And friends, the way you see yourself and whether you believe the God who made you 
will determine how you relate to him. And some of us think that we're only good enough to be slaves. Some of us, when Jesus will say, you're the apple of my eye, you are my delight. You're not a burden to love. I love being with you. Oh, how can that be? Lord, I'm so dark. I'm so ugly. Look at all my awful, uh, you know. Friends, unless you start to believe what your Father in heaven and the Son of God says, you won't behave in an appropriate way that He wants you to. When He wants to have fellowship, you'll feel, well, when I'm praying, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting Him. So everything's transactional. Uh, uh, what can I do for you? I haven't done that yet. Oh, no, I can't come close because I haven't. Everything, it's not intimate. It's not relaxed. It's not feeling secure. It's not feeling accepted. It's not enjoying what it means to be in the household as a son and daughter. No, a slave can't ever relax. A slave's on, on call all the time. And by the way, the slave or the servant only feels permission to be there because they're getting paid. And they can be dismissed anytime. Thank you, Dad. You can... Well, there we go. <coughs> can I say to you, how do you see yourself before God? Do you believe Jesus or do you believe yourself? Do you believe the flesh? Do you believe the world? Do you believe the devil? Can I tell you, she believes every word that the shepherd king says, and it is life-changing. Why is that? Because she knows. She doesn't deserve it. Her behavior is not perfect yet. She's just sinned. But in her position, she feels totally accepted. Do you today? Or does he feel like work? Does he feel conditional? Is he another to-do demand in your life that you feel guilty about? Friends, you must assess whether or not you are living your life according to how he sees you or how you think you, you see yourself. Because this is the problem. When we come to Christian identity and Christian position, we see our behavior and we go, it can't be true. Not so? You look at your life and you ask a banger. Nobody wants to see me parent my kids. Before the AGM, you would have seen the Medusa come out. And I've got to go and lead this congregation in a godly moment. Oh, we trust you, Jesus. You're so wonderful. But what am I doing in that moment? Am I backing off because of my behavior? No. I'm front-footed because of my position. And this is the thing is, you are not going to look at yourself and see this. You have to trust the words of Jesus that are saying it to you. And unless you do, you are never going to enjoy the joy of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. You are living by faith in what Jesus says to you. Feelings follow the right feelings. And why do you think they go through this list over and over? You know, sometimes when you read this book, you're like, okay, mister, we're so tired of you telling her how much you love her, about her teeth being like sheep and her, her ma you know, all these ones. Don't you think she needs to hear it often? Don't you? Don't you need to enjoy the words of your Savior often telling you what he means to you? Because you forget, don't you? And you doubt because you know what your behavior is really like. 
And this is the joy, friends. When you come to another round of this, it's for you. So what can we learn in terms of her position and identity from this beautiful discourse which he tells her? What we see firstly is that she has been totally forgiven and she is totally accepted. Do you notice that the first words that come out of his mouth towards her are not, You silly, fickle woman! How could you reject me at the door? Serves you right. You've got a few bruises and batterings. Let me tell you, he doesn't even bring it up. It's wonderful. He's forgotten. She's had to put a few things right, but he has responded with the most incredible affection and forgiveness and acceptance of her. He, when he says to her, you are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, don't you think she feels forgiven and accepted after what she's just done? Isn't it wonderful? Let me tell you today, guys, church, forgiveness is an experience. I watch it with my kids. What I'm trying to train our kids to do is not always sincere, but anyway, hopefully it'll catch on is when the one punches the other, I say, now you say sorry, but then I make sure that the other one who's been hurt sick, and now you can say, I forgive you. And do you notice if it's real, it's not always, there's a second of release. There's peace. And forgiveness is not a legal term. It's not justification. You don't feel not guilty before God in heaven, but you do feel forgiven when you listen to what Jesus' words are saying to you. And isn't it wonderful? You know what it's like to have behaved in such a way where you've behaved badly, right? You've blown it, and you'd rather crawl. And Oh, I've got a funny story. She won't mind. Ah! I, do I do this? Okay, Marina, forgive me. I'm just going to do it anyway. She's on call. But it's chaos. It's now bedtime, and, and the hospital calls her. She's this nursing sister. And the kids are fighting they are, are pulling each other. They, they've got, they, they are, it is a chaos. And she thinks she's put the phone down. And there's some public discipline that takes place. And she realizes that the nursing sister's still on the line. And she's like, well, at least they'll take me more seriously next time I do a ward round because they can hear what I'm capable of. <laughs> but this is it. She took so long, and I'm even worse than her. She uh, uh, they're going to think I'm an idiot. I've blown it. Friends, when Jesus is watching you 24-7, don't you think he has an interesting perspective of what we really like? And yet, he moves towards us as ones who are forgiven and released. And the reason why, you don't feel it at the time, and you don't see it, and you don't, but when you believe it, when you say, if we confess our sin... In other words, you know, you've you, you got to admit, there's, got to, there's tension in the relationship. Her not getting to the door, she was careless. It, it created tension. It didn't break it. But there was an aspect of sin which she had to go, I'm sorry, I, that wasn't right. It's okay, it's good. There's a restoration. But the responsiveness of the shepherd king is forgiveness. And let me tell you, when he talks about her being lovely as Jerusalem, Jerusalem is built on these massive hills. It is a huge fortress. The fact that Nebuchadnezzar could take it after such a long siege, it was miraculous. And when he talks about her being Jerusalem, he's talking about her being as secure as a fortress. Do you know when you really believe that Jesus accepts you 100%, you feel safe. 
Not so. You feel safe in his presence. You feel like you're in Jerusalem. There's his presence in the midst of it. And like a fortress, he's delighting you. His acceptance of you. His forgiveness of you. It's wonderful. The problem is, because we don't believe it, we don't enjoy it. Let's just peel away the mask for a moment. How many of you feel very guilty about where you are with the Lord at the moment? You hear about Song of Songs, you're like, ooh! The thing that will drive you to closeness is not moralizing yourself, but to realize this Jesus hasn't changed towards you. Is His love is just as available to you when you are at your best, now that you're at your worst. It's incredible. But you have to say, I'm not thinking, I'm not going by what I think about this. I don't see it in me. I don't see the word. But I'm going by what he says. And friends, the right feeling follows the correct faith of what you must say to yourself. That what you believe affects how you think. And how you think affects how you feel. And how you feel affects what you do. But you must believe it. The second thing is he sees you with remarkable strength. This is powerful. When we sing the battle belongs to you, when, 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 when we see the, the, the tomb, he sees the empty grave. What, what is, in essence, it's this personal experience of when he says to you, you're as awesome as an army with banners. I mean, she's just gotten beaten up. She's this weak little girl. How can he say to her, you have this remarkable strength. You're like an army. You're like an army with banners, proud of their king. It's because of this. He can see an inner strength in her. That is powerful. And friends, do you know that you behave according to the way you see yourself? That's a profound truth. And if you see yourself in the Christian life as this little, crippled, shriveled up victim, where God has left you at ransom to your sin, ransom to temptation, ransom to trials, if you see yourself as, oh, I just can't do anything. Why oh, is this always happening to me? I just have to feed her. I can't get it. Let me tell you, when he looks at you, he sees an army of banners. Why? Because the Christian is the one that is different to the world. You know, you get two kinds of people in this world outside of Christ. You get the kind that thinks so much of themselves and they're arrogant, right? They're so off-putting, egotistical. You don't like being around them because they're always talking about themselves. Or you get the timid person who thinks so little of themselves so that when it comes time to stand, oh, I can't do it. But you know, the Christian is the only one who can be both confident and humble at the same time because they have a power in them that's there but not from themselves. And some of us are struggling in our area of trial and temptation because we don't believe the deposit of God inside of our lives. When Romans 8 calls us more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, what is Paul saying? He's saying, if, don't you know that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you? That the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that conquered sin, conquered death, has set you up for fellowship and supply from the very presence of heaven. Don't you see that nothing can separate you from his love. doesn't matter, nakedness, sword, distress, persecution, famine. He says, no, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors because we are just self-confident. No, through him 
who loved us. And friends, when you start to see that you have power, you have power because of the Spirit, power because of the Word of God applied to you by the Spirit, power to start trusting in the promises of God that it was my reading this morning, that minister this grace and truth and life into your life. Friends, you start living differently. You face a temptation differently. You face that weakness differently. You face that trial differently. You start realizing, greater is He that is in me than He is in the world. But you won't feel it initially. You won't see it in yourself. But because this is what Christ says to you, you take on, I've overcome the world. And by the way, I'm living in you. You start to live like it. And friends, might I spell, what is your view of the deposit of Christ in your life? Don't you know that if God has allowed through his gracious hand this thing to come into your life, he's going to match you with grace to stand? Don't you think that when you need wisdom, when you're facing this trial of parenting, facing this trial of finances, facing this trial of work, don't you think that his desire for you is you're going to win? You're going to win because of great, great grace depositing you through the Spirit. He's going to help you to stand. He's going to help you to overcome. You're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. It will change the way you pray. It will change the way you face fear. You will see that this God isn't giving me a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and a sound mind. But unless you respond, it's not self-confidence, it's confidence in Him. In this ability that the grace of God is able to not only save you, but keep you. That the Spirit of God is not, able to, not just able to resurrect you, but to lead you as the counselor. When you're in that conflict situation, He's going to help you. He's going to overrule. You've got this sovereign God. You're his son, his son. You're His daughter. Don't you think He's going to help you as your father? Of course He will. You're like an army full of banners. And this love, the third thing we see is this love moves. Her love for Him moves. Him. It is so beautiful. Do you know that you have an effect on Jesus when you look to Him? This is profound. He says, turn away your eyes from me, verse 5. Turn, for they overwhelm me. Do you know what Jesus feels towards you when you are looking to Him and loving Him? It moves Him. Do you know you are not a burden to love? Do you know that Jesus delights in having you in his life? Now, why is that so important? It's because unless you believe that when you're getting down and you're not feeling anything and you're praying and you're trusting him and, 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 and you are, are, are going on in your dependency, unless you believe he's loving, it's doing something for him, you won't have the same inducement to do it. You'll feel alone. You'll feel this indifference. You'll sort of feel you're flying solo by yourself. It's an awful feeling, and we know what it's like. But when you realize that your faith, you're looking to him, you're love him, you're saying, Jesus, I don't know what to do, but I'm trusting you. I don't feel like I really have anything to give today, but I'm going to love you. I don't really feel like you're answering my prayer, but I know that as I'm praying, your heart is beating to the point of feeling overwhelmed. You know, this happened to my dad once, maybe more than once. I remember him, I was looking at him the one day as a young boy, and I just saw him tear up, and he had to look away because he was so moved by this connection of his son. Do you know that's what Jesus is like with you? Your love moves him. 
how does it feel that when you're worshiping on a Sunday, when you're giving yourself to, 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 to delighting in, do you think he's moving? Of course he is. He loves it. We'll move a bit quicker. She has a righteousness before him. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats sleeping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth, teeth are like a flock of ewes. He looked at all of these perfections. Every part has a partner. Every cheek is symmetrical. Every tooth is flawless. He is totally happy with her as his wife. Is that right? Yes. Everything's right. Now, it's not right in her behavior yet. She's just sinned against him. But as a wife, as a position before him, as his wife, he's totally happy. And this is the profoundness of us having a righteousness with Jesus. She has union with him because of a covenant relationship. She came in. By that moment, she became his wife. They became one. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. There was this profound unity that happened between this wife and her husband and friends. Paul calls it a mystery profound in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. And it refers to Christ and the church. Do you know that when you put your faith in Jesus, you received him? You got a position where God was totally satisfied with you as a son and daughter. Do you know why? Because when we say you are put in Christ, that's your position. It means everything that has happened to Jesus has happened to you. It means his perfect life becomes yours. It means his death becomes yours. It means his resurrection becomes yours. It means his ascension becomes yours. What does that mean? Is Why can God... Be happy with you as a son and daughter in your position. It's because all the righteous requirements of the law are met in Jesus' life. He lived a perfect life. And because you are in him, what happened to him has happened to you. And therefore, God is happy. When he died a death, your sin has been judged, friends. When you go to be stand before the king of kings, he's not going to be saying, what did you do in your sin? He's saying, no, that's past. It's what you do with the grace I've given you. Why is that? Because that death of judgment, that, 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 that uh, punishment was born by Jesus, and because you're in him, it's happened to you already. You've passed. You're set free. How about resurrection? The resurrection of Jesus, because you're in him, you've already received the resurrection partly through this new birth. You're in Christ. You're a new creation. But there's going to become a resurrection body because in him, it's already happened to you. And I'll say ascension. This is the most profound thing. Why can you believe that you're going to get to heaven despite your performance? It's because if you're in Christ and He's in heaven, you're already there. That's why Ephesians says you're already seated in the heavenly places. Isn't that powerful? That Jesus loves having you in His life and the Father, when He's with you, is totally satisfied to have you in His family. Sure, you can be a naughty blighter. Sure, you can be a rebellious kid, but even in that, his discipline is towards you as a position. Don't you think it's wonderful when the prodigal son comes and says, oh, take me back as a servant? The father refuses. He says, no, I'll only take you back as a son. In fact, the relationship never stopped. The father was always the father. The son's always the son. But friends, this is the point. Do you know that you are righteous before this God and he loves you and he's happy to have you as a son and daughter because of a righteousness received? He's happy with Christ. You're in Christ. That means he's happy with you. He'll deal with you based on your position. It's settled. He is for you, praise God. Her status is of inestimable value. She says, look at these queens. Look at these 80 concubines. These virgins outnumber. In, in verse 8 and 9, it says, the young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, they praised her. What are they saying here? 
She's saying what she realizes when she believes the words of her shepherd king, she starts to see the value of her status in the midst of the world. If you were a female in the Middle East, the best you could do is a queen. If you were ambitious, you could be influenced the court by being a concubine, rather awkward. A young virgin, is, these young women, is their beauty. It's talking about all the best that this world has to offer, friends, does not in any way correlate to the value of your salvation in Jesus. I'm a great admirer of Winston Churchill. He's one of the greatest statements, the titans of the 20th century, one of the most brilliant authors that ever lived. And he wanted to write his name in history. And I read his biography, a brilliant biography, this year. And as I closed it, I thought, you know what, Winston? You didn't have faith in Jesus. On that day, you're going to be praising what I have got and you didn't have. And I want, to, I want to warn you, church, we must be careful. If we don't see the value of what we have in comparison to what the world can offer, you won't live like it. You'll want to bow down to what the world is bowing down and saying, this is so wonderful, this is so lovely. This is what life is, friends. The Christian realizes that this world and what it has is nothing in comparison to what we received in Jesus. Can a billionaire use all of his money to pay for one single forgiveness of sin? No. Does a billionaire have access to the throne room of grace? Does a billionaire and, and, and a person that has got no relationship with Jesus, despite all of the accolades, have one ounce of what it means to be one with Jesus and to be a, a son or daughter in the house of God? No, not at all. And what we will find is the world on the day when we stand before Jesus is going to be going, wow, you've got something much greater than what we ever had. Now, friends, I ask you, do you walk with that stature? He said, um, please, I'm, I'm, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not talking about a swagger that's, that's, that's self-righteous. It's all by grace. But do you walk with the dignity of saying, what I have, this world can't buy. What I have, this world knows nothing of. Let me tell you, you might be a successful businessman. It means nothing in comparison to a successful Christian. Rewards, glory, eternal life. Therefore, the one who believes in Jesus, can I get an amen for the fact that you know Christ this morning? And you know, her status is admired by him. He, he, he looks at her. He goes, you, who is like this? Who looks down like the dawn? 6 verse 10, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army of man. He himself is going, oh my word, look at what has happened to you as my wife. When he talks about the sun and the moon, it's the chief stars of night and day. He's saying to even Jesus himself is marveling at your salvation and going, wow, look at what the Father has done through me in you. Wow! When you start to think like that, you go, man, I've got something here that's powerful. I've got something to live for. I've got something to lean on. I've got something to enjoy. And why am I saying all of this is unless you believe these words of Jesus in your life, ultimately, just bring it back full circle today, ultimately you will not be able to live close to Him. Which means you will not be able to have a relationship that is rich and fruitful in contact with the vine which means you will not be able to be fruitful and you will be stuck in an immature, graceless, and guilty space before a God who's saying, why? Because when she thinks about these words in 6 verse 11 and 12, she's going on a little walk. She's going to go check out the garden. And she's thinking about what he's just said. The Hebrew is very difficult. We're not entirely sure what it means in verse 12, but what it does mean technically, what commentators say is, suddenly she's transported in her daydreaming to desire. And she's suddenly in her mind daydreaming. She's in this chariot with her king. She has been thinking about what he said and the right outworking of that knowledge 
is I want to be with him. That is what the outworking of your faith ultimately needs to be. Is it helps you get close to the one who loves you. I ask you this morning, what are you waiting for? The problem is not on his side. The problem is whether or not you're going to believe what he says and live like it. Now, you might not be interested in what's shared this morning. I'll tell you, I am. Because I want what's on offer in Jesus. And who knows what your life will look like as you yield to him. We have an inkling as it will be like salt and light to a world that's thirsty and tasteless. And it will start to achieve a beauty that only somebody who understands the pathway to godliness, being the heart of it, being close to this Jesus, sensitive to this Jesus, committed to this Jesus, can produce. And he has a habit. He'll step in. He's a jealous lover. Praise God. There are these lewd guys saying, come dance for us. Come dance for us. It's the world. Come on, Missy. We want to see what you got. And he steps in. He says, don't you touch her. But she's in a struggle. It's a dance between two armies. Verse 13. She has to decide, am I going to yield to this kingdom's army, which is my shepherd king, or am I going to yield to the kingdom of this world? But I want to say to you today, God can take things away that are competing for your attention towards him. I'll share a little testimony now. I'll land on this. I was obsessed with tennis. At one point, I was playing seven days a week. And there was a freak horse riding accident where I happened to fall just right to break my left wrist. I could never play tennis again. I was addicted to TV. Let me tell you, my first thing I did when I got home was to go straight to the set. I didn't even think about food or lunch or anything. And you know it's bad when you can watch all the very marked commercials. You know it's bad when it's closer or Afrikaans, it doesn't matter. It's a screen. You just sit there and it's good. Shogun, all those knives. I could tell you all the different sets. It was fantastic. <laughs> my grandpa rented that TV and he died. No TV for two years. My workaholic status, my, my unsanctified connection to work. Let me tell you, God touched my health. He still has to do it. He has a way of removing competition in your life. And I want to ask you, the first prize is to listen to his voice and obey, but the second is he can take it. And I want to ask you, what is your response in those moments? Because he's taking it for your good. And I just want to say that there might be somebody here today that he has touched something in your life and it has felt like a loss. I want to ask you, was it competing with your space with Jesus? Was it a wake-up call? Because whatever is happening in your life, remember what the purpose of God is in your life. It is to drive you closer and closer to the source of life and power and grace, to the vine, to this Jesus. His grace is moving you towards Christ, my friend. And if there is an opposite action, an opposite groundswell, by the grace of God, He's a jealous lover. He has a way of shielding you. But will you flow with it? I'll leave this with you today. 
forget moment how well your studies are, how well your finances are, how your kids are, how your family, how, how's your, your, your love life, how all these different areas, these wrong, forget. I want to ask you the primary question that you must live off every day is what is your desire for Jesus? And how are you living for him? That's it. That's it. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh, Lord, do this in us, I pray. Might we see our need for Jesus afresh today. Might the joy of living under your yoke that is easy, Lord, your burden that is light, flowing from your leadership and for your, your sufficiency in life to be enough in every area, be the joy of our hearts and the strength of our lives. I pray for a renewal in people's times of prayer, that they would see as we pray, you are moved by our love, Jesus. That we would be moved ourselves by what our devotion and diligence and dedication to you does for you. I pray that there be an awakening today again of what it means to be at peace with the Son of God through his blood. To enjoy access to his presence and to feel accepted as one that is safe in his eyes. Not, not conditionally accepted that, that's under scrutiny and under fear. Friends, I, Lord, I pray that for my brothers and sisters in the 